A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, what's next for Brendan Rodgers after another defeat for his Leicester side and a big one at that? Chelsea put themselves right back in the title race. How much does Romelu Lukaku improve their starting 11? We'll talk about the top four race with wins for Spurs, Arsenal and defeat for West Ham United. Can Manchester United get themselves back involved as well? And what should happen with the calendar from here on out with a raft of postponed across football. This is the game. Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast. I am Hugh Wisencroft alongside Tom Clark, uh, Tom Roddy and Alison Rudd. Hopefully you have had a spectacular Christmas period, happy holidays, uh, festive period, whatever you want to call it. You know, I don't, I'm not into religion and all this stuff, but whatever you want to call it. We've got more to come over the next seven days as well. What the festive football calendar, you know, what, what? I don't know. I don't do these sexy names, but you get it. Loads of games over the period of time that you're off work and get to see all your family. So we hope you enjoy it and um, look none more so entertaining than the game at the Etihad Stadium so let's start there finish 6-3 Manchester City beating Leicester City I've got to ask questions about Brendan Rodgers losing 6-3 there was bad but it could have been worse 4-0 down at half time for the Foxes they almost came back into the game and got a draw it was 4-3 at one stage but it never really felt in doubt as Manchester City pulled away at the end so easy for Pep Guardiola's side to create chances that you've got to start asking questions about the Leicester City defence. But of course, there are a raft of injuries in that area. So how much should Rodgers be criticised for the season that Leicester are having currently sitting in 10th place? Tom Clark, I'll start with you. Not at all. They are. I'm going to go straight in with a very <laughs> definitive opinion. You know, as watching the watching the highlights from that game, and I've watched a fair bit of Leicester this season and slightly flip-flopped on my opinions. Initially, I said, don't worry, Leicester fans, just have a season of transition. Then I said, look, admittedly, they can't defend from set pieces. Even someone as good as Kasper Schmeichel looks a little bit out of sorts. That's a bit of a worry. But I just, I just don't think you can pin the problem on Brendan Rodgers, given all that he's achieved and all that he's shown in his career, both at Leicester and in the wider sense. I just think it would be absolutely mad to even consider his position as manager of Leicester. As you said, Hugh, they've basically got an entire defence out injured at the minute. Any team that would go to Manchester City in the form that they're in at the minute with the the defence that Leicester had um, yesterday would always be susceptible to conceding three, four, Ah, five. But hold on. 
it's not about the players necessarily. It's about your approach, knowing that you've got all of those players injured and it's it's your pretty much third choice defence. Yeah, well, so what do you want him to do then? Well, surely try and shut up shop at least. No, because, well, he'd, he'd made a tactical change, didn't he, at halftime when they conceded the goals and they looked a lot better. But look, he's not going to be a Jose Mourinho type manager who's going to park the bus. He wants to try and win games. He wants to try and attack teams. Leicester have actually caused Man City quite a few problems under Brendan Rodgers in the past. I don't see... It doesn't seem to me like a problem where you're going, oh, the players don't look like they're playing for the manager. It's not like, oh, he's completely lost all sense of direction. This is a guy that has achieved a great deal in the game. He's achieved a great deal at Leicester. They've got a hell of a lot of injuries at the minute. And as I've already said, they seem like they're going through a season of transition. Jamie Vardy seems to be getting fewer and fewer minutes. James Madison, poor at the start of the season, now looks completely rejuvenated. I just think there's there are issues at Leicester at the minute. They're in a bad patch. It would be madness to consider Brendan Rodgers' position. Tom Rowley, what do you think? I think if you were sort of playing devil's advocate, then you could say you had the period, since winning the league, you had the period under Claude Puel, which was hugely underperforming. And so Brendan Rodgers came in and has had an opportunity to, to build from a pretty low level, really. But at the same time, I don't think you can kind of just write off the fact that it was only a few months ago they won the FA Cup for the first time in, uh, I can't even remember how many years now. And uh, they were semi-finalists in the League Cup, had Europe in consecutive seasons. As Tom said, you sort of see, you see the progress in players, what a good coach he is and, and that change that he made at halftime, maybe it came a little too late really because all Brighton against Sterling was pretty hard to even watch, let alone <laughs> let alone play if you're if you're all Brighton. But I don't think you can really stress enough the the loss of Fafana because we've kind of seen the progress that they've made each year. And he was I think he was the one to really sort of take them to the next level. When you think that Daniel Amati and Yannick Vestergaard, who were in there yesterday, I don't think if Fafana was playing and Johnny Evans, that City would have scored those goals because they were so poor. And I kind of watched when when Leicester got the first goal back, I watched that and thought this this could so easily have been almost a sort of smash and grab to an extent. If they'd have only defended better in the first half, they were dreadful goals to give away. No, I agree with you on that. Um, Alison Rubb, before I get your view on the game, I've just found a badge on this desk. This is the, the studio in which we usually record the podcast in, and I think you've left something behind. It's a little badge <laughs> which says, somewhat sweary and remarkably articulate. And I thought immediately <laughs> of, of you... <laughs> so I'll return that to you the next time I see you. Anyway, your views on uh, on Brendan Rodgers. Um, do you think he should be under any pressure at Leicester City? Not because of what happened against Manchester City. I think that would be the ultimate knee-jerk reaction, to be perfectly frank. Actually, I quite liked the way when they had nothing to lose that Leicester went at um, City's high line and exposed it. And you sort of thought... Well, this is, you know, this is the Leicester we like to watch. I mean, the thing I've liked most about Leicester under successive managers is their fearlessness. And when Rodgers taps into that, 
they look good. I mean, he, he needs to be given a bit of a rollicking because of his devotion to zonal marking, which doesn't seem to suit them. Um, I don't, why would you persevere with a system that doesn't work for you? Seems strange. I think he's being a bit obstinate there. But, you know, he has a host of excuses of, as both Tommies have explained. I'd rather say, well, he gave us entertainment. Um, there's always a fear that matches over Christmas won't won't be fun. And this one was. So he played his part in that. And there are glimpses. There are glimpses of how they might they might perform when everyone's fit. There are some teams who have problems with COVID or injuries and you think, well, they're hiding behind that. Where are they going really? With Leicester, you can you can see they haven't lost their their soul yet. So I yeah, no, I think it's a bit peculiar. If you're gonna have a go at Rogers, have a go on a more holistic sense. Don't have a go because of this result. Manchester City, I think, were incredible as well, and they deserve credit for the way that they played. Nine straight Premier League wins. I feel that they they have turned that corner now. They are the champions elect in terms of a long winning run that they could put together from here on out. And they already have half of it, I think, in the bank in terms of that Premier League title. Are they about to create some space with with Liverpool and Chelsea, Alison? As you, you sip your tea, yeah, take, yeah, take your time. <laughs> it's a new Christmas mug. I've got to use it. Um, <laughs> well, at the moment, yeah, they look unstoppable. They've been very fortunate. They're not, they haven't got any crises at all. I mean, the only problem Pep has, I think, is that he has too many fit and available players. <laughs> and he gets, a bit, he gets a bit bored sometimes. I mean, what problems to have? I, I do feel sometimes we see him experimenting with... Um, formations and even within a match you feel like he's trying things out and it's like it's going to become a procession if there are a few unfortunate incidents at City I mean they can absorb a lot of injuries can't they they've got a magnificent squad but maybe there could be they are they can have hiccups they're not it needs there to be a big hiccup for, for it not to be a procession right now absolutely or that Pep gets too bored and tries things that are too silly Otherwise, I mean, you know, they did they did look slightly weird um, when there was that 33 seconds when you thought, oh, there's going to be a fight back. It's going to be five all <laughs> this, isn't it? But um, at this moment, with everything going so well for City, but, you know, this is a strange world, a strange season. They could hit a bump in the road. I don't know what it'll be, but it could happen. I don't see it. 17 goals in the last three games. Is it 11 different scorers at Manchester City? So, you know, it's it's like they read the headlines that they need a striker. Everyone across the pundits, myself included, saying they need a centre forward. And they thought, you know what we'll do? We'll equally share around the goals across the entire squad for the course of this season. So no one notices that we haven't got a genuine centre forward. Tom Roddy, you look at the others, okay, Liverpool didn't play. We'll come to Chelsea in a second. And you're, you're starting to think that, that City are beyond, you know, they, they've emerged already as the team to beat. Definitely, because also since Guardiola came in, they seem to, City seem to change the dynamic a little bit with the Premier League title race, where it used to be you get to this period of, period of the season after Christmas and this is where it's sort of won and lost. Whereas in the years when City win it regularly, they get ahead pretty early and then they're unstoppable. They went on that 21 <laughs> successive win wins last year and then it was just, it was gone. No one had a chance of catching them. 
One of the things I find remarkable about City is how they just manage to ease through periods where there could easily be problems, where you think they had 36 league goals by this stage last season. When Sergio Aguero was there, they had a goal-scoring striker. They've scored, I was looking earlier, they've scored that many goals since the middle of October to now, and 50 in total this season. It's It's absolutely incredible how they've just turned into even more of a scoring machine without having a striker and then you also have these it's the kind of rejuvenations that I find incredible as well where it wasn't so long ago you had Raheem Sterling being linked to Barcelona and unhappy with the amount of games he was playing similar situation with Bernardo Silva I mean Sterling's now scoring more goals than he has done in ages for City. Silver is, we, we spoke on the podcast, what, last week, the week before that, about whether Bernardo Silva was the best player in the Premier League. They seem to ease through periods of uncertainty or potential uncertainty so uh, serenely. And when I saw that six-point gap open up, I think with City, you'd rather you would rather have the points ahead of them rather than have the opportunity to be catching them up. I think with City, it's it's better to to not be the hunter, uh, to use Lukaku's words yesterday. Let's talk about the title race a little bit more then, because I think City, although they're pulling away, there was a. An important result for Chelsea yesterday. They went to Aston Villa. They won by three goals to one, inspired uh, by Romelu Lukaku off the bench. I think this brought them back into the title race. I think defeat would have made it very difficult. They would have been nine points behind Manchester City had they lost to Aston Villa. Instead, six points behind City at the top of the Premier League table. What was key for you in this one, Tom? You you went, didn't you? It's obviously... Lukaku, but in a one-off game, a little bit, I think it really. This game really suited him. Christian Pulisic started as as a false nine up against Tyro Mings. He was just absolutely bullied the whole of the first half, and it felt like the kind of game that was crying out for a proper focal point up front. It totally proved that way because Chelsea were an entirely different team in the second half. And there were, it was really interesting at the, at the end of the game, Tuchel said at this period of the season, and he was in a moment where he was complaining about the, the schedule and lack of substitutions you can make at the moment. But he was saying at this period of the season, we don't make changes for tactical reasons it's simply fitness we're simply checking and making sure we're not overloading players but I thought that the change he made at half time was was really crucial not just Lukaku but also taking Trevor Shalaber off and putting Reese James as the right side of the back three because of his pace his Ollie Watkins his pace was causing Chelsea so many problems down the left and that totally solved that issue and they were so much better in the second half. And also the thing with Lukaku as well is he's the temptation, I'm sure, for Tuchel would have been to have rushed him back in a little bit more, to have played him a lot more. But he's he's come back from that ankle injury he had against Malmo in, I think it was October, end of October, and was out for quite a while. Then he had COVID recently. So this was his first game back since then. And... Throughout December, he's he played him 
for about half an hour here and there. And we, you've expected a little bit more. But the benefit was huge yesterday because you saw he looked so lean, which he didn't when he came on against Man United after his injury. He looked so lean. He was running down the channels, which is when Lukaku's at his best. The the clever run he made for the goal, the headed goal against Mince, his movement was excellent. And the benefit for Chelsea is that they have, you know, Havertz can play as a false nine, but Lukaku can be can do what he did yesterday. He is a match winner, and if they are to to make a title challenge this season, then he's going to be key. Tommy Roddy, were you left not thinking what is the point of Pulisic now? I mean, it's like they're carrying an ex, you know, they're carrying a player they don't. You know, it's, it's causing them problems. I think even they always carry there. players they don't need. They they're currently carrying three or four players they don't really need. But Pulisic is getting game time and not. He's not. He's not exploiting that possibility. Havertz was getting game time and they were carrying oh, him. And Timo no, Werner no, was getting no, game no. time and I they were carrying say, him. I would say, I would say, no, uh, I would say, I would say with those three, there are glimpses of what could come and what more game time might give them. With Pulisic, it's the opposite. I feel every time he plays, his reputation diminishes. There's a strange relationship between Pulisic and Tuchel because he was probably one of the only players when Tuchel came to Chelsea who didn't really start with a clean slate because he knew from his time at Dortmund, he he viewed him as this kind of super sub in a way. And there was a stage last season where he was coming off the bench and scoring quite a few goals. But it just, I, I, I think in this period of the season when everyone, when the system just isn't working, which which it it really hasn't been lately. Uh, I think that was why it was so key with Lukaku coming back. But this period of the season where it's just really not working, I, I don't think Pulisic can be as effective as a false nine because they're just not playing to the intensity they would usually. But I don't see I I don't see you winning a Premier League title with Pulisic as a number nine unless you're playing in a Guardiola team. Maybe I'm not I'm not sure. Well, I don't, I don't think the title race has gone to Man City for a start. I think Chelsea are definitely still in it. I think Lukaku is absolutely key. I, I, I think that's a little bit harsh on Pulisic, Alison. I think those players, he's not got the technical ability, the spatial awareness that, say, Havertz has got to play that kind of false nine role. I think he's better out wide running at players and potentially, this is a classic Chelsea thing to say, a kind of impact sub off the bench. But I, I do feel there's, with with that list of players that Hugh went through, Havertz, Werner, Pulisic, Ziyech, Hudson-Odoi, I was perhaps expecting that by now, Tuchel would have worked out, you know, a kind of hierarchy for them. And I don't quite feel that he has yet. I don't know whether that's injury related. I don't know whether that's because of Lukaku inconsistencies with whether he's been able to play or not. But I was expecting to kind of see who his main men were. I mean, I don't know, Tom, maybe you think there is a kind of hierarchy in, amongst those players, but I, I don't quite feel that there is yet. And so that that is maybe a, a broader concern that, that they all still seem to be finding their feet a little bit. It's a really good point because also, you know, Lukaku was kind of the missing piece of the puzzle <laughs> yeah. at the beginning of the season. He was always referred to as the missing piece of the puzzle. But at times this season, you haven't been entirely convinced that Tuchel really 
believes he was he was that that he, that the only difference between him having a Premier League winning side last season compared to this year was having Romelu Lukaku up front. I think he he mentioned in a press conference recently when talking about bringing him back that the difference between the Italian league and the Premier League. So the suggestion was that there was almost potentially a little bit of the numbers that he recorded in Italy might have flattered him a little bit. But he certainly, you know, there's he certainly rates Havertz as well playing in that in that false nine. The issue is that he's slightly become Tommy Tuchel, the Tinker Man, a little bit. You don't <laughs> you, you you don't really know who's going to be up front anymore. There's there's so it's such a big squad and there there is quite a lot of rotation. It all but it all boils down to his he's passionate about his double six, isn't he, Tuchel? And when he hasn't got it fully functioning, it does everything else sort of slightly clicks out of shape a little bit. It worked, do you not think, because you were there, Tom, that he had Jorginho and Kante and that that is a perfectly acceptable double six. But when Kante got injured, I think, did he get injured, Kante? Do you think he's injured? Well, then he brought Kovacic on, but Kovacic isn't up to speed yet. So he went to, well, he effectively went to a triple six, didn't he? He had a five-man midfield. I think he overthinks it sometimes. He's too devoted to it. And it does seem to be at the heart of whether, obviously, Luka, a fully fit, functioning Lukaku is an amazing asset. But in terms of us talking about hierarchies and what is, you know, what does he really want from his team? I think what he really wants from his team is to have a perfect double six, and then it works from there. And he's he's had so many problems with his central midfielders. And that's had an impact all over the pitch, I feel. I did think when Lukaku came on, though, that there was an answer in many ways. You know, all, all those players that we haven't really figured out, you know, what they are to this Chelsea team had a, a more clear sense of direction when Lukaku was on the pitch. It became evident for the forward players, the front five or six players, this is how it works. We've got a focal man. We've got a focal point in the box. We've got almost a target man at times. Let's work across and see if we can get it into him. You know, it was sort of the false nine thing. There was almost an element of a lack of direction. But I think Lukaku's presence gives you that very clear sense of what we should be trying to do in the final third. And I think lots of those players that we mentioned are comfortable playing off someone like Lukaku. The ball being fed into his his feet so he could either spin, turn his defender or lay it off. You know, people are making the right runs. I think it lifted Chelsea massively. So I, don't, I do think it helps them having Lukaku in the side. But I agree with you. Alison, what, what is Christian Pulisic going to be for Chelsea over the coming years? No, I mean, where, where is he going to play? He started playing right wing back. I don't think that's the position that he wants to be in. Callum Hudson-Odoi's played there previously. He was in the front three where Pulisic had been. You know, they're, they're not that interchangeable. I don't really see Christian Pulisic as a left wing slash right wing back. So I think they do need to come to some sort of conclusion over that. I mean, it was an interesting game. Let's get to the game in particular. I think Aston Villa without Steven Gerrard on the touchline was certainly a different prospect. Danny Ings started the game alongside Watkins. I don't think they've clicked at any point in time. Will there be a solution to that in January or maybe in the summer? I'm not sure. I probably think Mendy should have saved the first goal, the deflected one from Reese James. 
slightly odd bit of goalkeeping from him, who's been you know, not really himself in the, the last few weeks. But remember, even though Chelsea won the game and it was an important victory, two penalties were given away in the match by Aston Villa. And that could have been a game that they've really given the three points away. I think Matty Cash really wasn't paying attention uh, over his shoulder when he fouled Callum Hudson-Odoi. And then Esri Konza very late on didn't really need to leave his feet when he did to try and make a challenge on Romelu Lukaku, who was really, I say, looking for it. He was waiting for that contact to come. And when it did, it was a, a clear foul. Do you think Villa gave the game away, Tom? A little bit, yeah. I thought they were really impressive in the first half, actually. From the get-go, it felt like the kind of game that was going to be a bit of a, a surprise. And and when, even though it was a, a little bit of a freak goal with the Reese James's deflection off his head and Mendy being caught out by it, 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 it was a, it was fair. They deserved they deserved to take the lead, and it and for long periods. It was heading towards that kind of game where even though Lukaku gets a lot of the credit and the headlines, Hudson-Odoi had a, had a very good game. In truth, for long periods, they were relying on last-ditch defending from Thiago Silva, from Shalaber and from Rudiger. There were, there were so many blocks they were putting in. And to be honest, Villa were, were a little bit wasteful. Danny Ings, he's, he's a funny player Danny Ings because he can be so alert and so clinical but he, he, he can't I don't know if it's the way he runs but sometimes he looks even from the beginning of a game like he's playing in the last few minutes he is quite he, he looks quite cumbersome really they were just wasteful with opportunities there were, there were lots of them and they just made the wrong decisions in the final third at times and and didn't take their chances because it could so easily they could so easily have been two or three in front by half time we'll try and fit into the conversation a little bit later on whether the season should be continuing to this point in time because there were very many games called off across the football pyramid but Thomas Tuchel's comment slightly perturbed me, saying that they would struggle to get a squad together for the game against Brighton, who played, by the way, after Chelsea at 8pm. Lukaku, Christensen and Kovacic came off the bench for Chelsea yesterday. I, I just thought, look, apart from Pep Guardiola and Manchester City, I mean, if there's any club that you would want to have the squad of going through this period of, of many, many games... It would be in Thomas Tuchel's position, surely. I mean, actually, on the back of the newspapers, out of Tuch, a uh, pun on out of touch, uh, there were, yeah, I don't write headlines, but yeah, yeah, you, you, you get it, you get it, don't you, right? I, I think it was pointed out that I think he is a little bit out of touch, isn't he, Alison? Well, he's, he's missed a trick, actually, because he, uh, he seemed to be saying after the Villa victory, remember they won, that what he needs in order to cope at all is five subs and he just doesn't expect that's going to happen. Why doesn't he suggest four and then slowly worm his way to the world accepting five? Why do we go from three to five? Then everyone says, no, thank you very much. Why doesn't he suggest four? He might get some backing for that, mightn't he? Yeah. Go on, go on, tell me why. Tell me why we've gone from three to five as the proposal. I don't think it should be five. Oh, but should it be four? It's like that game you play where you say, you know, would you do something you hate? Like for me, it would be go in a helicopter. 
would you go in a helicopter for 10 grand? No. Would I go in a helicopter for a million quid? And so on and so on. It's like, what's the... I'm interested in the answer now. Go on. Well, the, answer is, the answer is no money at all would get me in a helicopter. <laughs> I, think, I, think the, I think the discussion over the morality and whether it's fair to slightly smaller clubs to go from three to five subs, that indignation would ease if it was the bigger clubs saying, okay, we get that. Could we have four? Because you know very well in two years' time it would sneak up to five. I don't know why people go from three to five. But my issue with it is I think it would stay forever and I think it materially changes the game. It actually changes the sport of football if you have five substitutions and you can change half of your outfield team during a match. I absolutely agree with you, Hugh. I just think the people who want it are not being clever about how they might get it. If Tuchel had said, I understand the objections to five... Why don't we talk about four? The conversation might have started again. <laughs> we, got, we, got a, we got a little insight into the Rudd Christmas Day activities then, didn't we? With the games? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I find it... What, what I don't like is this... There, there has been a little bit of a reaction to, to some of the complaints about, you know, coming into the English... This is how our game is and, you know, don't try and change it. Similar with the the Boxing Day and 28 fixtures, but it's uh, there's plenty of British coaches who feel exactly the same, that it is, it's just walking a, a tightrope of fitness for players and we just see so many injuries. So I, I do get it, but, but I also find it incredible where there's this public sort of help us... Uh, help us protect players, the health and safety of them. It was It's the Premier League clubs who voted against it. So I don't see the benefit of, of talking publicly as if it's the Premier League as a board that are going to decide it. 22 games in the EFL uh, postponed, very few surviving. Clubs, of course, in the EFL in a slightly different position. But if there is a spike in cases after the Christmas period, many Christmas gatherings, of course, would have taken place. Do you think it's going to be inevitable that we do move behind closed doors, maybe, in terms of football grounds? This is if there's spikes, by the way, across the nation as well. Um, Do you think that's going to be inevitable that we play our part in trying to reduce transmission by going behind closed doors. Do you see that as not going to happen at all, Tom? I think it's certainly got to be on the table. I, I think fans have got to be thought about in the more immediate sense when it comes to postponements and things. I mean, Blackburn's game at Hull yesterday was called off about two hours before kickoff. And that's a for people with a lack of northern geography knowledge, that's about a three-hour drive across the country. It's just not acceptable for fans on Boxing Day making that kind of commitment, that kind of drive, or getting the train, you know, to then be basically probably get there and be told actually the match is off. People have to think of the fans in that sense when we're talking about COVID and postponements and things. And then if we're going to talk about circuit breakers behind closed doors and things like that, you've then got to think about the clubs as well because... As we talked about at the start of the season, a lot of championship clubs feeling the pinch from last season. A lot of League One clubs have spent a lot of money in the summer and would then be severely hit. A lot of big clubs with big big stadiums uh, who get big attendances, they'd start feeling the hit if, say, we took a month behind closed doors. So I think you have to think of the fans first and get a bit of a clearer communication and decisions on these COVID-related postponements, i.e. teams haven't got enough, we're going to postpone the match. And then secondly, if you want to talk about behind closed doors, 
to reduce transmission, you have to be thinking about the clubs further down the pyramid because you can't just pull the plug. It's the same kind of careless behavior that's happening at the minute, you know, in a broader sense with the hospitality industry where restaurants and places are having to make decisions on their own back without any kind of support or kind of guidance, really. So it needs to be thought about in a kind of wider sense from from the footballing uh, administrations from the top down. The thing is as well, is that uh, I totally understand the idea of the the behind closed doors and but really the issue is is within the squads and what is sometimes easy to forget is that you know a lot of these a lot of premier league clubs you go into Tottenham's training ground and it's like arriving at a country club masses acres of of space and a huge building and loads of room for them to to work in and then you go to a club like Shrewsbury, where there's <laughs> they're sat in the in the canteen, all huddled together, watching tactical analysis on a screen because they haven't actually got a video room with someone in the in the kitchen behind them doing the dinner and everything. That's that's the difference. Is that it's so they don't have the facilities at these smaller clubs to to help stop transmission as much as at these bigger clubs. So that's part of it. Also, I mean, probably I feel slightly dirty saying this, but the, the optics are completely reversed this time around. So when we had Project Restart and games with no fans, everyone was so grateful that football was back and the government allowed it because they said they wanted to build the country's morale and it was a clear way to do that. But having experienced football with no fans and now having gone back to it. And I think the, um, the return of fans as has had an impact on atmospheres. I think on the whole fans have responded well and they're more vociferous and there's more passion and slightly more positivity. I feel to then take that away from people that it's like, it wouldn't, no one, it wouldn't have the impact it did last time where people were grateful. People would be very angry. And they would say, why are you spoiling our fun? For what reason? Because we don't have the right amount of information to say that's the good thing to do. And people will say, well, it's not about it's not about the games. It's about getting to the games. It's about the resources of um, the medical services and the police and so on. But it's I just think it would actually have the opposite effect that it did last time and it would make people angry and ruin the nation's morale. So I think I think it would be a big mistake just on that level. And I agree with um, Tom Clark about everything he said about the impact it would have on teams lower down the pyramid as well. We should have looked at the calendar though, shouldn't we then, and move some of these games during this period of time where there are so many matches coming thick and fast to, to later in the season. Yes, it's I guess it's not our traditional Christmas experience when it comes to football, but it might have been a little bit more pragmatic to go from Boxing Day to New Year's Day to maybe the first round of the FA Cup and take out uh, some of the, the many games that we've got coming up. There would be, but I mean, also Boxing Day is a massive day for clubs, again, referencing it but it's obvious further down the pyramid there were so many even with rising covid cases and the fact that this season we are absolutely useless there were 8000 people in a 10000 seat stadium at lincoln city yesterday thankfully i wasn't one of them because we lost 3-2 in the last minute but boxing day is a massive day for football it always has been and for these clubs that will have been a massive 
factor in getting fans in, making money. You know, these, these are tiny things to to Premier League clubs, perhaps, but they're huge, huge moments in the season. Yeah, but have have Boxing Day, then have no more games until New Year's Day. Take away that game in the middle, exactly. You could, but then you'd have problems in that these clubs also need and are desperate to be considered and compete in cup competitions. You know, we're already talking about getting rid of replays in cup competitions. Replays are often what make these kind of clubs money further down the line. You know, so those clubs are going to be want to be in the picture for cup competitions. That then condenses their time in which they can play all their league games. You know, it, I'm not trying to be deliberately um, argumentative in terms of your suggestions. I appreciate that with a bit of foresight, we could have said, oh, maybe COVID problems come around during the winter. Let's think about it. But it, as often is the case, football comes down to money. There's a reason the big clubs play in all these competitions all the time without any respite. And managers like Thomas Tuchel say, we need, we need no one's thinking of the players because they're making millions and millions and millions. There's a reason the clubs further down the pyramid have to play these games because they're doing it to survive. We're going to come to, I'm sure, more of this uh, as we have news on what happens next with the nation, not just football, uh, in the coming weeks. We're going to talk about the top four next. If you're enjoying the podcast, though, make sure you rate us, uh, leave us a review, and of course, make sure you're subscribed. We'll talk Arsenal, Spurs and West Ham next. 
I still think they're not quite they're not playing with the kind of zip and excitement that Arsenal are playing with. So in that in a in a broader sense of the teams that we're maybe talking about to argue with the top four, I'd say that they've still got mo- more work to do. But it's a good start. And he's you know, Conte's getting a lot out of players like Lucas Mora, which, you know, is what great managers do. They come in and they not only improve the team as a whole, they get a little bit extra out of those players, those maybe kind of eight out of ten players that fans get frustrated with. It's it's encouraging signs, but I if I was a Tottenham fan, I wouldn't be getting too excited just yet. Yeah, no, I, I agree. There's a narrative emerging about how um I think it's quite funny actually. Um we all know that when Conte was in charge at Chelsea, he used the word suffer more than most people use the words and, if, and, but. And <laughs> the players have already bought into it at Spurs and you get any post-match words from the players and they talk about how they're all suffering together. It's it's what is part of Conte's template. And it's basically, he just makes sure that, as you say, Tom, they run more, but... That sounds like a nice trajectory, doesn't it? But I was at the quarterfinal against West Ham in the week in the Carabao Cup and Spurs did that thing that I hadn't seen them really do for a long time, which was they they really ran. I mean, it was helter-skelter stuff. It was bonkers. It was madness. It was run, 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 run. And they completely ran out of steam. They're not, they're not there yet. And uh, the game ended with West Ham looking the more accomplished, grown-up team and they were unlucky not to at least get it to a penalty shootout. And then you get the game against Palace. Well, you have to remember, they, uh, Palace were down to, a ten, to down to 10 men before the second half started. If you're a team that's working hard and suffering, oh, that's I mean, you know, it really helps to have <laughs> the best player on the opposition team not there. You can, it helps you you know, absorb the shock of the extra work you're doing. I just think this impact of suddenly coming in, not having the preseason, just coming in and making them all work very hard. I think that sometimes they'll look fantastic, but it, that they'll be that it will break down within games themselves. And I think when they're playing tougher opposition, they might find that they run out of puff too soon. It's not they're not there yet. If it was that easy to do, then everyone would do it. I just don't think it's... And they had that two-week break because of their COVID break, which clearly helps, again, in terms of getting your message across, but also just getting your energy levels back. But once they're back in full swing with many games, I think I just think it's slightly too early to say he's coming he's, and they're all running and they're great. It, at times against West Ham, they did not look great. That's a really good point because also I was listening to Alison talk then and, and wondering if Roy Hodgson had still been in charge at Palace, whether Tottenham would have had such one with such ease yesterday because you can imagine, I think what, they, what he really misses Conte at Spurs and that he had at Chelsea was someone like Cesc Fabregas because I remember his first game uh, Everton and he was constantly on at Hoiberg to play the ball over the top, play the ball over the top. And he, he just doesn't have the same passing range far, far from it than, than Fabregas. And we saw in the game last week that Eric Dyer could possibly be it, that, that kind of real deep lying quarterback role. But you can't, that's very, that's very quick to read, you know, you, you, teams will work that out quickly and 
you'll see, even at the beginning of the season, in that game against City, the first game of the season when Nuno was in charge, we saw Tottenham play actually in a similar way to this where when Kane wasn't playing and, and they just played with a really fluid front front three and they're effective when they counter-attack and they're given the room to counter-attack. When they don't get the room, then they may come unstuck a lot more. I'm unconvinced by Tottenham Hotspur as yet. I know they're working a lot harder. I think the, the Crystal Palace game was the first game that I think they truly dominated. But if you look at the teams that they've played so far, I mean, they, they've beaten Leeds, Brentford and Norwich. They got a draw against Liverpool, which we've already discussed, and then Crystal Palace. I mean, I'm not saying it's not an improvement. It is. I'm not saying it's not on the right track. It looks like it is. It's just a little bit too soon to be talking about them as genuine top four contenders. Although... Tom Clark. Well, I was always, I was just going to say before every Crystal Palace fan throws their phone and headphones out the window that you know they were a team playing against a Crystal Palace team that had asked for the game to be postponed that were out that without their manager. You know, Hugh, you said it yourself about Steven Gerrard's impact on the touchline when you don't have your new manager who's clearly galvanised this young Palace team and without a few players as well. That that kind of left the door o- open for Tottenham to put in that kind of performance that looked so dominant. Again, I'm not I'm not dismissing what they've done. I just think that actually if Conte gets them into fifth and sixth and maybe wins a cup, that, that can be a real achievement as well. I think top four would be a hell of a hell of an ask. I, I'm I'm not sure actually. Having said all of all of that, and it, afterwards I felt like it was really negative. But I actually think out of the three that we're talking about, Spurs, Arsenal, and West Ham, you've got West Ham who are who are punching above their weight so much. Arsenal who are in a fabulous form at the moment, and Arteta's doing brilliant work in in getting them somewhere. But Tom made a really good point right at the top there, where Spurs are, are back to basics. They're they're sort of back to the team that we saw at the beginning of last season when they were they, they looked like they could have been title contenders. I mean, they were top of the table for a period. Um, I think they have this they they've had this within them, and it's just going getting that back, rediscovering it. Whereas Arsenal are trying to find somewhere and. West Ham just it, it's always a not a losing battle but they're they're they were overachieving anyway you've fallen into the trap you've fallen into the trap what what no but what do Spurs have in them Tony uh, exactly Cascar- what I was going to ask what's Tony the Cascarino, this Tony Cascarino says in the game today uh, that he, he feels that Conte can end the Spursiness of Spurs they've always had this glimmer of Oh, it could be now, could be now. And they don't, they don't win anything and they don't properly challenge. And if they do, they fall away. They are flaky. I'm talking about the top four race though. I'm not, I'm not, I'm saying I think they can get into the top four. I'm not saying they're going to make a title surge or anything like that. Okay. So, so you're bringing them back to the limitations of making the top four is considered as good as a trophy. And so we start again. And so we start again with Spurs. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to Arsenal across North London. They're purring at the moment, aren't they? Mikel Arteta's side. Four wins out to four. Once again, without Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. And you've got to start saying now that they are a better team without him. Their young players excelled once again, the likes of Bakayu Saka, Emil Smith-Rowe scoring three games in a row off the bench as well. 
Norwich pretty poor in terms of opposition, but a 5-0 win, you know, shows that there is a level, there is a standard that is coming through at Arsenal right now, Tom Clark. Are they better without Aubameyang? Absolutely, 100%. And thankfully, Mikel Arteta listens to the game podcast because we were <laughs> we four were together, weren't we, a few weeks ago when we said they should strip him of the captaincy and get rid of him. Look, who knows what's going on behind the scenes, but all that matters for Arsenal fans is that on the pitch, the lack of Aubameyang means that he can put another one of these young players in, an Odegaard, a Martinelli, a Saka, playing alongside a kind of rejuvenated, experienced Alex Lacazette as well. And they just look... <laughs> contracts up admittedly but look hey you know we, we all do it from time to time um, they, they just look so fresh and exciting and we've said a lot in the past about Arteta's demeanour on the touchline I think as well at the minute that kind of body language he looks like a confident manager he was kind of sh- I think for the first goal with the pressing you can hear him going yes Gabby yes Gabby when Martinelli's pressing the Norwich defenders which is where the first Saka goal comes from and that, it just feels like it's all coming together. Yes, they'll still have their moments where they'll get beaten by the bigger teams high above them in the table. But this is real progress for Arsenal, I think, to be putting away these teams in this kind of a manner with those kind of players all attacking as one. They genuinely look scary and impressive going forward. And, you know, as someone, I think, said, Hugh, I can't remember who it was, Mikel Arteta, manager of the season. Like any um, modern day politician, I'm going to double down on that and keep saying it. Every time they win an easy game 5-0, I'm going to keep doubling down on it so that eventually everyone agrees with me. If they take fourth place, he may well win it, to be perfectly honest with you. Norwich City, a word on them. Alison, the worst Premier League team ever, do you think? I find them pretty meaningless at this point in time. I mean, they don't seem to be... <laughs> They just, what's the point? I mean, what's the point? (laughs) To be called meaningless is, oh, that's really, really nasty, Hugh. Um, No, well, it's accurate, but it does sound a bit mean. I think they're the worst ever because, I don't think they are, they're the worst ever because they've been there, gone down, come back up, and they've not learned anything. And that makes them more guilty of abject ridiculousness than any team that's done poorly before, but it's a sort of one-off, oh, we're lucky to be here, and then they disappear from view. It's it's that complete lack of proper analysis of where you went wrong, what you need to do better. They do not they do not defend like a Premier League club, the very basics that a Premier League club should do. They don't move very much and they don't seem to have much awareness of what might happen to them. It's a bit embarrassing. They can't get an attack going. To, um, they, they did the first time around. They could. They, they made quite pretty patterns the first time around um, and could cut through teams occasionally. Now the passing is, um, uh, I don't know, it's sort of, oh, I think we were told to do this in training last week, so I'll try it, but the person isn't running where they should be running. It's like made-up football. It's just ridiculous. So, yes, they, they are they are pathetic. I mean, maybe in midfield, they're one or two players that work hard, I think, and don't look entirely stupid. But I think, really, what, what said it all was Dean Smith afterwards. You know, he's one of the loveliest, most loyal managers in the game will always take it on himself if something goes wrong. He just looked shell-shocked that a team he had prepared was so, so ridiculously poor. So to answer your question, yeah, 
get rid of them. Thank you so much for um, allowing me to not have the most uh, insulting comment about Norwich on this podcast. <laughs> I thought for a minute it was going to be me until you started speaking. So I appreciate that, Alison Rudd. Anytime um, yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. They, they need something massive. And um, yeah, I think when Dean Smith was appointed, my personal view is he was appointed with a view to the championship. And I, I won't really judge him on his management until they're down. Um, and he's got a side that he needs to bring up instead. Uh, let's move to West Ham United, the London Stadium, a defeat against Southampton. Um, poor defending or maybe defensive injuries look like they could cost West Ham a pretty important season in terms of where they could have been in the league. Do you think it's as simple as that, Alison? You were there. I think you have to have some sympathy, actually. There's there's no Cresswell, no Ogbonna, no Zuma, and those three alone were catching the eye, weren't they? Um, playing incredibly well. I, I mean, just just the sort of players any club would think, oh, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind them in my team. Um, so to lose all three from... From the defence is... I did see a stat that said they had won five of seven with all three of them in their starting 11 and they had only won three of the 11 games with at least one of them missing. So they, they are vitally important. Well, you don't need the stats, actually. You just look at them and they bring authority and confidence and delivery. Yeah, you know, there's a lot that they have a lot. And actually, although West Ham's recent results have been disappointing and they've lost that top floor top top four place um they're still they're still playing attractive football um as i said in the second half in that efl cup tie at spurs they were the better team um and weren't playing a full strength team and looked good they looked good they were playing you know they were their fans were really pleased with them at the final whistle they were playing well and there were moments at the london stadium where you thought Ah, oh, they've still got it, that spirit, that sense of we can do this. But it wasn't just the defence. There was sort of there was a bit of sluggishness up front as well. I just don't see West Ham as a sort of club that are going to assess that some of these injuries seem quite long term and invest a lot of dosh. I don't, I can't see it. And so I think they might just ebb away, which pains me because I did I did really feel that something almost magical was happening there. This was a team that was getting booed by its own fans. The fans did not want to be at the London Stadium, but they were won over by some swashbuckling football. It wasn't that long ago that they were thrilling us with their victories over Chelsea and Liverpool. Uh, they need to get up for it when they're playing clubs lower down the league. They don't seem to. The stadium was almost half empty on Boxing Day, uh, which was a bit dispiriting. But there, there are reasons for that, aren't there? Um, but other, other grounds were full. But it's just, it's just, it was sort of magical and now it feels like it might just be dissipating, which I think is a huge shame. What do you think, Tom Roddy? Is it just the injuries that have happened at the back as a reason that there's a bit of a malaise right now at West Ham? No, not only that. Um, I think it's a, it's a large reason. You know, uh, I was I was talking about Leicester earlier and the the loss of Fafana and how I don't think those goals that City scored in the first half would have happened with him and Johnny Evans there. I think it's exactly the same with West Ham. Craig Dawson had a nightmare really against Breuer, didn't he? And I think Zuma would have been so much. Zuma's pace would have would have been so much better for them to have. I think Zuma and Ogbonna's aerial uh, presence would have prevented 
I can't remember what was it the second goal. So it's a it's a huge it's a huge part of it. But even before this, West Ham was slightly struggling with up front because there was a heavy reliance on Mikel Antonio, who scored his first goal in ten games yesterday. But he, he, even he spoke after the after the match, talking about the the mental fatigue as well as as well as the physical fatigue because of them being in Europe this season. And you saw it because probably the one area where they've been most reliable has been in um in their in their own uh, double six of um Suchek and Declan Rice. And that they are usually so good at protecting the back four but they, they, they just, they would just off it, not sharp enough and not snapping into the challenges and getting the blocks in that they, they've become famous for really, the two of them in that partnership. That was really lacking and, and that could be seen in the, in the physical fatigue really. They obviously had a fantastic season last season and kind of, it felt like the snowballed and just carried on into this, this campaign as well. And you have to look at it in a broader sense than say that if, Tottenham with Antonio Conte, Manchester United with Ralph Ranić, Arsenal with all these young players and Mikel Arteta finally clicking. If West Ham finish below those three teams in the West Ham fans might not want it in the Europa Conference League in seventh, that'd still be a good season. Hey, if, even if they finished eighth, that's still a good a good achievement. What it's about now, probably in a broader sense, and it's kind of Alison's point about not feeling like they're the club that's going to go and spend to say, hey, we're still in this top four race. But what it can be about and has been about under David Moyes is sensible decisions. It's not the same as the defenders. If they've got everyone fit, they don't need any more centre-backs because they've got Zuma and all the all the other defenders that are out injured at the minute. What they do need and what they will need, whether they've got a full squad or not, is a new striker. So what they could do is go and look and prioritise that in the January window because that will still be the same come the summer. And that could just give them the boost, give them the lift that they need in the same way that Jesse Lingard's loan move did last season. So you would hope that perhaps something sensible could be done that works in the short term, gives gives the team and the squad a lift, maybe doesn't help them uh, defensively in the short term, and also works in the long term as well. And that maybe they can keep fighting for a fifth or sixth place finish. Who do you think then will finish in fourth place? Me, I'm going to say Arsenal because I'm doubling down on my Mikel Arteta love. I'm going to say West Ham because it's Christmas and let's all... I don't know. Just they, 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 I think they're the story of the season, so they've got to get something out of it. They'll either finish fourth or they'll win the Europa League, one of the two. I am going to go with Spurs, just to just so that everyone has a vote. Well, no, that is far from the reason, but that's very nice, isn't it? In the spirit of goodwill, everyone gets a vote. Hugh, you backing your boys? Christmas miracle has been achieved. Listen very closely. Hugh Wizencroft is about to say something positive about Manchester United. Well, I do believe that they will finish in the top four. Disaster of a season, but a positive from here. So, you know, uh, you know. Listeners should know that this is being recorded before Newcastle's famous 1-0 win in, in their match tonight. The podcast will be back on Thursday the 30th. Uh, if Manchester United are being beaten by Newcastle a little bit later on, it will be the podcast to end all podcasts. Make sure you tune in for it, okay? 
We will see you on Thursday. Tom Clark, Tom Roddy and Alison Rudd, thank you very much for being with me for the past hour or so. Thank you all for listening. We hope you've had a very a Merry Christmas. The happy holidays will continue. We'll be with you on the 30th and the 3rd as well. So make sure you're tuned in. Make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times as well for more of our award-winning journalism. If you sign up today, you'll get yourself one month free. So go online, check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We will see you on Thursday. Thursday.